This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend The Invitation Only Zone by Robert S. Boynton. This is the story of something you can bet we'll be spending time on in the next few episodes, North Korea's abduction project, which involved the capture of dozens of Japanese nationals over the course of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Those Japanese nationals were then used to train North Korean spies in how to blend in to modern Japan. It's a fascinating story, and one that continues to poison the waters between Japan and North Korea. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. History of Japan podcast, episode 156, Best of Frenemies, part 2. The age of imperialism, when it came to Korea, did as much to upset the apple cart as it did in Japan. Now, that statement might surprise you. After all, there was no great uprising in Korea, no civil war which overturned the established order as a result, in part, of the threat from the West. The factors that promoted the Boshin War and the subsequent Meiji Restoration in Japan were not present in Korea. Unlike the Tokugawa, the Yi Dynasty enjoyed general support from the upper class. The Yangban of Korea had nobody equivalent to the Shimazu or the Mori families with an old historic grudge against them. Korea's economy was far more carefully monitored, and as a result, there had been no shift in the balance of power which would favor an uprising against the Yi. So there was no big bang that could easily mark off a new period in Korean history. And yet, the arrival of an expanding West shook Korea in a manner very reminiscent of Japan. All of a sudden, an intellectual universe which held China at the center was smashed to pieces by the reality of China's humiliation in the Opium Wars, and by the arrival of an armed and dangerous West ready to turn its guns on Korea as well. For the Koreans, in fact, China's defeat was even more of a shock. Korea had modeled itself off of China for centuries and was now being forced to observe the humiliation of its proud neighbor-slash-role model. The response among Korea's elite was, at this point, near universal agreement. If the West comes here, drive them away. For the conservative elite Yangban of Korea, the West was an object of nothing but contempt. Not only did these people not observe the true ideals of Confucius, they were obsessed with that least Confucian of values, personal wealth. In the traditional hierarchy of the Confucian world, merchants were as low as you could get without going into social pariah status. In the traditional Confucian four-part division of society, Merchants placed dead last. 
To Confucian eyes, merchants were parasites who existed primarily to drain money away from those who actually produced something with their labor instead of just moving numbers around on a spreadsheet. So when the Western empires came with their guns and their ships and they were obsessed with signing commercial treaties, well, that's just ridiculous. First through the door were the French. French missionaries began arriving in Korea to propagate Christianity in the 1830s, often hopping over the Chinese border, especially once the end of the First Opium War gave those French missionaries the legal right to operate in China. The Korean government had not banned Christianity per se in the way that the Japanese one had, but Christianity was heavily frowned upon as a competitor with Confucian ideals. So the Korean court took increasingly strident steps against converts to French Catholicism among the Korean populace. When a more conservative ruler, known by his title of Daewon-gun, the Great Archduke, took control of Korea's government in the 1860s in the name of his infant son, King Gojong, he decided to do something about it. In 1866, the Daewon-gun issued orders for the execution of Korean Catholics and French missionaries in Korea. The French, under their ambitious ruler Louis-Napoleon III, responded with military force. Napoleon III was trying to build a global empire to surpass that of his far more famous, and if we're being honest here, far more talented, uncle. His venture in Mexico had already failed by 1866, and Japan was looking increasingly like a loss, because Napoleon III had gambled on the Bakufu instead of Satsuma and Choshu. So hey, if we're looking for a French presence in Asia, Korea's just as good, right? A French expeditionary force was ordered to seize Ganghua Island off of the coast of the Korean capital of Seoul. There they were to make an example of the local forces before signing a treaty to reopen Korea to French missionaries and French influence. However, the Korean general on the scene, correctly estimating that his troops had no shot in a frontal attack, waited for the French to land and then ambushed them. In the ambush, Korean numbers and the element of surprise prevailed over French firepower and floppy mustaches, and the French were forced to pull back. That same year, another power emerged to try and force open what Westerners were already calling the Hermit Kingdom, the United States. After all, America had opened Japan, how much harder could Korea be? In 1866, an American steamship, the USS General Sherman, arrived at the mouth of the Taedong River on Korea's western coast. The ship was an armed merchant marine vessel, not a naval warship, and it was escorted by Chinese trading ships crewed by Chinese merchants with experience in Korea. Upon arrival, the American crew of the General Sherman reached out to the local Korean government and were told that their attempts to negotiate a trade treaty were not welcome. The Koreans would provide them with food and provisions as a sign of hospitality, but then they would be expected to leave. The Daewon-gun himself sent orders that if the Americans tried to stay, they should be attacked. Unwilling to take no for an answer, and ignoring Korean orders to remain at anchor at the mouth of the Taedong River, the General Sherman sailed up the river to the nearest big city, Pyongyang. There, the governor of Pyongyang told them once again to leave, 
and some sort of incident broke out. According to Korean records, the crew of the General Sherman seized a Korean official sent to negotiate with them and held him hostage. The Koreans responded with force, the Americans fired back, and eventually the whole thing ended up with the General Sherman firing its cannons into a crowd of Koreans who had gathered at Pyongyang's harbor to demand the release of the captured officials. The General Sherman, now under constant fire from Pyongyang's shore defenses, retreated back up the Taedong River, but then its navigator made a fatal mistake. He ran aground. Local Koreans, incensed at the Americans, stormed the grounded vessel and lit on fire. American and Chinese sailors trying to escape were captured by the mob and beaten to death. Ultimately, every member of the General Sherman's crew was killed. Incidentally, a little modern interlude, according to North Korean propaganda, the leader of said mob, none other than Kim Il-sung's grandfather, who, like his grandson, led the virtuous Korean people against the American imperialists. Today, there's a museum maintained by the North Korean government on the spot where the General Sherman was burned. The American government, as you might imagine, was not particularly happy with this outcome, especially when another ship sent the following year to determine what had happened to the General Sherman was met with threat of violence and a curt letter from the Daewon Goon stating that all aboard the General Sherman had been killed. That kind of thing could not be taken lying down. It took a few years to organize, but by 1871 the U.S. government had moved enough forces into the region to launch a punitive expedition against Korea for the destruction of the General Sherman. That force, composed of 650 sailors and marines split between five ships, was extraordinarily successful, far more careful than the French in their attacks, the Americans were able to land on Ganghua Island and seize and destroy several fortresses, with a total of 13 casualties, 3 dead, 10 wounded. However, there was one tactic the Americans were just not prepared to deal with. They had expected to sweep in, blow some stuff up, and then cut a deal with a bunch of scared Korean leaders to avenge the honor of their fallen and show the locals what for. Instead, the Daewon Goon just ignored them. He knew that 650 people was not a threat to the entirety of Korea, and he was well aware of a geographic advantage he had over the Japanese leaders who had been forced to stare down Commodore Perry's fleet. Edo is on the coast, but Seoul is a bit inland. That meant the Americans would have to sail upriver to attack the Korean capital itself, which would leave them far more vulnerable to artillery fire from multiple angles and to running aground like the General Sherman had. So the Daewon Goon simply ignored the events on Ganghua Island, and when the Americans came calling requesting a chance to negotiate and offering to trade for some Korean soldiers they had captured, the Daewon Goon told them to go to hell. There would be no negotiations, and anybody cowardly enough to be captured could, as far as the Daewon Goon was concerned, stay with the Americans. Eventually, after about a month, the Daewon Goon was proven right. A force of 650 was just not enough to do more than occupy an island, and clearly that wasn't going to get anybody anywhere. The Americans packed it in, and went home. As we've seen, the unique diplomatic stylings of the Daewon Goon were summed up by one key idea. 
keep the foreigners out. He was an isolationist and a deep conservative, very much committed to maintaining Korea's established social order. However, in 1872, the base upon which the Daewon-gun's power rested began to erode. His young son, King Gojong, came of age. In and of itself, this was not a particularly huge problem. Gojong was not the brightest star in the sky by any measure, and could easily be manipulated. However, Gojong was married, and his wife, known as Queen Min, was a potential problem. Queen Min was very different from her father-in-law. She was a reformist. Much like the more moderate elements in the Tokugawa Bakufu, she believed that a degree of opening was necessary. The important thing was to learn what was useful from the West, and especially to try and learn from the Japanese, who, after all, were navigating the minefield of Westernization, and who were not doing a particularly terrible job of it. As you might imagine, the Daewon Goon hated her, but Queen Min knew that, and she planned for it. In 1872, Queen Min successfully conspired with other members of the imperial court to essentially impeach the Daewon Goon, convicting him of unlawfully trying to control his son and ordering him into retirement in the countryside. With the Daewon Goon removed, Queen Min was now the real power broker at court, and she began to encourage more open diplomatic policies. And at that moment, who would blunder onto the stage but the Japanese? Remember that at this point, the infant Meiji government has made some attempts to establish diplomatic relations with the Korean kingdom, all of which have been a bit of a mess. At issue was primarily one of those questions of form that tend to be the essence of many a seemingly petty diplomatic argument. The Japanese wanted to conduct their foreign relations on the new Western model a formally arranged discussion between two equal partners, conducted by the accredited representatives of each side. However, the Koreans were far more used to a sort of arm's-length relationship. Previous Japanese diplomatic missives had come through the rulers of the island of Tsushima, the So clan, which lies between Korea and Japan. The So family had been entrusted to handle the Korean relationship and had carefully arranged things to the liking of the Korean court. Incidentally, and I bring this up only because it's a recent topic for us, the So clan also claimed descent from one of Taira no Kiyomori's children. Among other things, the So accepted a position as nominal vassals of the Korean court, and passed on messages during visits establishing their fealty to the Korean king. In diplomatic correspondence, the So were very careful to avoid using the word emperor in relation to the nominal ruler of Japan. So far as the Koreans were concerned, after all, there was only one emperor, and his imperial hind quarters could be found only in Beijing. The new Meiji government, however, threw all that out the window, told the So diplomats to shut up, we got this, and tried to approach the Koreans in the manner of European diplomats so the indirect approach was not used, and neither was the seal given by the Koreans to the So family to validate official correspondence, and the Japanese insisted on referring to the Meiji Emperor as just that. None of this made the Koreans very happy, and as you might recall, things between the two sides got a little dicey. So dicey, in fact, that Saigo Takamori literally quit his job in the government 
when his plan to invade Korea to punish them was shot down by his colleagues. However, Queen Min was far more receptive to dealing with the New Japan than her predecessors had been. In 1876, she was given a chance to demonstrate that. The previous year, a Japanese gunboat called the Unyo was sent to more or less deliberately provoke the Koreans. It began charting the waters around the Korean coast without permission from the Korean government. This kind of charting being the sort of thing you might need to do if, say, you were looking for landing spots for a ground invasion. When the Unyo reached Ganghua Island, its commander ordered a company to shore, ostensibly to look for fresh water. The Korean garrison on the island, as it had done against both the French and the Americans, opened fire. The Unyo retreated with minimal losses, but the next year a larger Japanese armada came back and demanded restitution. This time, Queen Min did something the Daewon Goon never would have done. She agreed to talk. The result was the 1876 Treaty of Ganghua, which granted Japan all the rights in Korea that Westerners held in Japan. Access to the treaty ports, control over Korea's tariff, and extraterritoriality immunity from Korea's own laws. Japan, in other words, forced an unequal treaty on Korea just as the West had forced them on Japan. Over the next few years, Queen Min's court signed similar treaties with the other powers of the West. So what was she thinking? Why sign treaties like this? Well, partially it was the result of an understanding of geopolitics, similar to that of late Tokugawa-era officials like Hota Masayoshi or Abe Masahiro, who signed similar treaties for Japan. There was really no choice. Sure, you could continue military resistance, but the largest force the Koreans had seen so far was still smaller than Perry's fleet from 1853. Even if the first attack had been defeated, could the next? What about the next? What about the one after that? eventually the damage would start to pile up and Korea's defenses would falter. Partially, this decision was also a function of the advice Queen Min and her court were getting from a very specific source. Korea's closest ally at the time was Qing Dynasty China, which during the 1870s was undergoing a modernization effort of its own. That effort was guided by senior officials within the dynasty, such as Wu Zongtang, better known in the West by an incorrect reading of his name, General Tso, yes, he is the one the chicken is named for, Zheng Guofan, and Li Hongzhang. The last of these men, Li Hongzhang, encouraged the Koreans to sign unequal treaties with Japan and the West. His logic was derived from an old notion in Chinese history, the idea of using the barbarian to control the barbarian. Again, this is a notion with old roots. It goes back to the earliest days of Imperial China, when the Chinese government fought wars against the nomadic tribes to its north. The theory is essentially to play your enemies off each other by cutting deals with them. Support a chief who is favorable to your interests, undercut him if he gets too strong. Trade with all the tribes and encourage them to fight for the scraps. Arm underdogs, cut supplies to the powerful. Simply put, why kill them yourselves when you can get them to kill each other for you? Li Hongzhang and his allies wanted to apply the same logic to their relations with the modern West. They signed treaties with all the foreign powers, 
on the theory that said foreign powers would then kill each other, fighting for control of China. He encouraged Queen Min to apply the same logic to her own foreign relations. This is an interesting idea, but it proved unviable for both China and Korea for a couple of reasons. First, the power differential between Korea, China, and the West was just too big. The Asian powers couldn't do enough to alter the distribution of power in their favor. Second, China was big enough to split into spheres of influence between the powers, and only a limited number of powers had an interest in Korea. Nobody would really end up fighting over China, and only a small list of powers cared enough about Korea to fight over it. For the Koreans in particular, the strongest power in the world, Great Britain, had no interest in the peninsula. It had eyes only for the fishing village turned trading metropolis of Hong Kong, and the vast wealth of the China market. The French, too, had given up on Korea and turned their attention instead to an African empire and to Indochina, modern Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The United States was still a couple of decades away from its emergence as an imperial power, which would not take place until the Spanish-American War of 1898. Germany, well interested, lacked the kind of fleet necessary for a play at Korea. That left only two powers with a real interest in Korea's fate. First, obviously, was Japan. In particular, more military-minded members of the Japanese government considered Korea to be of huge importance to Japanese security. After all, Korea had been the springboard for the only attempted invasion of Japan in history, that of the Mongols. Who was to say that whoever ended up in charge of Korea would not revive its use as a launch pad for attacks on Japan? father of the Japanese army and on several separate occasions Prime Minister of Japan Yamagata Aritomo, articulated this idea most clearly during one of his addresses to the Japanese Diet, or Parliament. He described two parallel notions, a line of sovereignty, demarcating what a country controlled directly, and a line of interest, demarcating areas of strategic importance to a country. Korea, said Yamagata, was obviously outside the line of sovereignty for Japan. It was not a part of Japan proper. Yet it was well inside Japan's line of interest, because control of Korea's resources and strategic position could allow a hostile power to threaten Japan. The German officer hired to train the new imperial army, Jakob Meckel, made the same point far more compactly. He simply described Korea as, quote, a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. The other interested power was none other than our old friends, the Russians. The Russian Empire's continuous expansion under the Romanov dynasty made it the largest contiguous state in the world, with a truly massive reservoir of citizens and resources to call upon. However, Russian ambition went far beyond control of the frozen reaches of the Asian North. The Tsars aimed for control of warm water ports in all the oceans adjacent to their territory, the Baltic Sea, Black Sea, and the Pacific Ocean. In Asia, the territories of Manchuria and Korea promised just that, as well as a share in the Asian empires now being carved out by the other great powers. So Queen Min's grand plan to play the foreign powers off each other backfired because, in the end, only two of those powers were willing to fight over Korea. 
The unequal treaties the Koreans signed, meanwhile, opened three ports to the foreigners. Wonsan, on the Japan Sea coast of what is now North Korea, Incheon, on the western coast of what is now South Korea, and very close to the national capital at Seoul, and Busan, the city on the Korean peninsula closest to Japan. Busan, naturally, became the chief hub of Japanese influence, Wonsan the largest hub of Russian power. Both sides maintained a presence at Incheon, as well as diplomatic staff at Seoul. In Korea itself, the unequal treaties resulted in a split among the Korean ruling class. Some Yangban embraced the ideas of Queen Min, and believed that engagement was the only way for Korea to survive. Some took it even further than that, and embraced the theories of a Korean Meiji restoration, that engagement with the West would allow Korea to transform itself just as Japan currently was doing. Probably the most notable among this faction was Kim ok Gyun, an immensely intellectually talented member of the Yangban class, who had been hugely successful in the exams required to advance in government service. After the treaty with Japan, Kim developed a fascination with the Meiji state, which he saw as the ideal model for Korea. Rather radically by the standards of the time, Kim argued for abandoning Korea's historic relationship with China and establishing a far closer relationship with Japan. He also took the very unusual step of studying abroad. In 1880, with sponsorship from the Japanese intellectual Fukuzawa Yukichi, he came to Tokyo and studied at, among other places, Fukuzawa's elite private university, Keio University. However, Kim ok was a bit of an outlier among the Yangban. The majority protested new policies which they saw as undermining the essence of Korean society. Conservative members of the Yangban argued for the expulsion of all foreigners, the burning of foreign books, and the execution of Christian converts. In other words, for a return to the policies of the Daewon-gun. Such openly expressed dissent was not tolerated by the royal court. After all, this is a monarchy, not a democracy. Calls for expulsion were temporarily silenced in 1881, when the court took the rather extreme step of arresting one of the leading conservatives, named Hong Che Hak, for the crime of criticizing the government's decision to establish its own foreign ministry. Hong was subjected to a short show trial and then decapitated, his head displayed outside Seoul as a reminder to the conservatives of who was really calling the shots around these parts. Throughout the course of the 1880s, a split would gradually develop between those elites like Kim who were willing to accommodate the new order, and perhaps even saw advantages in it, and those like Hong who believed in resistance to maintain the status quo. We've spent most of today delineating the sides. Next week, we'll see them clash as a result of a series of internal Korean struggles that will get mixed up in international politics. The result, depending on who you ask, either Korea's liberation or its destruction. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Best of Frenemies, Part 3.